American support for Israel, Democrats blaming Bibi, and the Iran nuclear deal. Don't push pause. Part two of our interview with former Israeli ambassador to the United States, Ron Dermer, is just around the corner. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to episode 17 of the Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg alongside my co-host Jared Bernstein. In our last episode, Ambassador Dermer shared his thoughts on a possible coalition government in Israel and what the future could hold for Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On this episode, part two, we dive deeper, talking about policy and history, including the fight over the Iran nuclear deal, the Corbynization of the far left, and the future of American support for Israel. Let's not waste any time, Jared. Here comes an action-packed part two of our interview with Ambassador Ron Dermer. We had Ben Rhodes on our last episode. Uh, he had interesting choice words uh, for the Israeli government under the leadership of Benjamin Netanyahu over the Which, years. Tell the truth. You liked him just a little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll just say <laughs> the Ben Rhodes on the Jewish Insider podcast uh, was, was a lot different than the Ben Rhodes I recall doing battle with uh, when, when I was in the Senate. But uh, uh, glad he came on. Uh, let, let's, let's just play the clip for you and, and, and see if you can respond. Okay. I have the same position today on the Israeli-Palestinian issue as I did when I was an APAC kind of card-carrying donor in 2004. What's changed is Israeli politics. And on the Iran issue, we, we, we just, you know, we didn't break norms by the way in which we made the case for the diplomatic agreement that we had always said that we were trying to, to reach um, through the Obama administration. It was Prime Minister Netanyahu who at the invitation of a Republican Speaker of the House, without even telling us. We didn't, we didn't learn from the Israeli government. We learned from a press release from John Boehner that, that the Prime Minister of Israel was going to come and make a speech to the U.S. Congress against like a signature foreign policy issue. That's not the Democratic Party picking a fight with, with the Israeli Prime Minister. It's the opposite here. So I'm, I, I, we didn't do everything perfect, I'm sure. Like, find fault with what we did. You guys, like, you do, you know, uh, obviously, like, have mounted a lot of arguments against what what we've done on our policies. But on this one, I really just, I really don't believe anybody in the Democratic Party got up one day and was like, you know what we really want to do? We want to start having really intense disagreements with the Israeli government. That was not our intention. Um, it, it was just the reality of an Israeli prime minister who w- was already to the right and went further and further to the right, I think, over the last 12 years. And And by the way, don't take my word for it. Listen to him. Um, a guy who made a speech in 2009 about the need for a two-state solution now says today that there'll be no two-state solution on his watch. I mean, that's that's not an evolution in the Democratic Party. That's an evolution in the Likud Party. So uh, obviously, uh, in conversations I've had for years, Democrats have long blamed Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech uh, in the joint session on Iran as some sort of a breaking point in at least their relationship uh, with the Israeli government. Um, you've also cited that as one of the highlights uh, of your tenure. Um, I remember it. It was very impactful on me and others, um, uh, for those who opposed the deal, obviously. Uh, what's your response overall 
to to what Rhodes is saying there and sort of the the idea that we're laying blame at Netanyahu for the discord and the Democratic Party today with Israel? Well, there, there's so much to unpack there that is not true. It's it's hard for me to do it in one podcast. But, but first, <laughs> just just to say, because I know he he wasn't around the last five years, but he just said that Netanyahu doesn't support a two state solution. You know, last January he was in Washington when President Trump put out a peace plan that calls for a two-state solution. So let, let's just put, you know, let's just make that clear. I also think it's a lack of understanding to understand, or, or lack of, uh, it doesn't understand what has happened within Israel. I do not believe that it is the case that Israel has moved to the right. Uh, and in fact, if you look at, in terms of peace with the Palestinians, There are some issues where you could make that argument, largely issues that have to do with the role of the courts in Israeli society, and that's a different discussion. But if you look at Yitzhak Rabin's last speech to the Knesset in 1995, where he says the Palestinians will have less to a state, this is before his assassination, the Palestinians will have less than a state, Israel will have a united Jerusalem and would retain the Jordan Valley in the broadest possible terms, meaning Netanyahu today is to the left of where you were being was. The problem that happened with the Obama administration, when they got in in 2009, is they acted as if almost the last decade did not happen. They, they treated the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as if we were, we just finished Camp David, and all we have to do is get the parties together for another few weeks and we have a deal. And then you remember these narratives that Netanyahu can but won't, and Abbas you know, he, he wants to, but can't. All of this was nonsense. I mean, Israel had experienced the greatest, most, most generous peace offer that has ever been given by uh, Ehud Barak. A thousand people dead. Then we had a disengagement in 2005 where Sharon left Gaza. And that was not met with any kind of positive response by the Palestinians. It led to the election of Hamas, Hamas throwing out the Palestinian Authority from Gaza, thousands of rockets fl- landing on Israel. And this was really at the time that, that President Obama took power. And the Obama administration just simply neglected to have a policy and to try to implement a policy. They took any of that, that decade to account. And was so, I can tell you, be, having been there in 2009, it, it was sort of shocking that it was almost nothing had happened for the last uh, decade. So not only is it not true on the Palestinian issue, but it seems to me on the uh, on the the issue of the prime minister and the speech, uh, you know, I never, and you know this, Rich, because I, I've spoken about this while I was ambassador, when I'm not ambassador, when Obama was in office, and when President Trump was in office. I never questioned the sincerity of the people who supported that Iran deal. I never did. I didn't do it with President Obama with then Vice President Biden or anyone else. You know, they were saying at the time, this deal is better for Israel and it's better for America. I never questioned their sincerity. They did not actually give us the same benefit of the doubt at all. I believe that the Iran nuclear deal is a threat to the very survival of the state of Israel. And they are ascribing political motives to us that never existed then and that don't exist now. Had there been a Republican president who had the same deal on the table, we would have acted the same way. And when there was a Republican president who did something that we thought would be dangerous for Israel, we did act the same way. 
So just to give you an example, it's very specific. We don't have to go back 50 years and we don't have to take a different prime minister. Let's take Netanyahu. Netanyahu, in 2002, I mentioned Operation Defensive Shield earlier. That was after a year and a half of Palestinian terrorism. You had Israel finally have this uh, crazy idea that the way to fight terror is actually to fight it, where we launched this massive operation to go into Palestinian areas in Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, into those cities where you had all of these suicide bombings were emanating from those, uh, from those cities in order to basically dismantle the terror infrastructure that was put in place. Now, you may remember when Israel launched that operation, within days, the Bush administration, and, and George W. Bush was seen as being very friendly to Israel, he said Israel should withdraw immediately. Then either, I don't remember if it was Powell or Rice or both, Powell was the Secretary of State and Rice was the National Security Advisor, they started defining what it means immediately. And they said, now, without delay. And Prime Minister Netanyahu went to Washington. He wasn't prime minister at the time. He was actually a private citizen with the blessing of then Prime Minister Sharon. And he went to Washington and he spoke to 50 senators. I was physically there when he spoke to 50 senators, Democrats and Republicans, against the policy of a sitting Republican president. But what no one did is turn it into a partisan attack. The ones who turned this into a partisan issue was the White House. And they did it in order to delegitimize the arguments. Instead of actually seriously thinking about what the prime minister said, what they did was they cast, they did it to me, because you know there was a New York Times story many years ago that says that I was a Republican operative. I've never been a Republican operative. But that was easy for the White House to do, to dismiss their opponents, because this is politics. It's not that we think that this Iran deal, I mean, and I think this is the worst deal since Munich, that this deal just gives Iran a path to a nuclear arsenal, and it paves that path with gold. And they went to the American people, and they said this blocks Iran's path to a weapon. That's a lie. If there would be a, something that would block Iran's path to a weapon, I, as the ambassador of Israel, would have done anything to support such a deal. We would never have opposed such a deal because Iran vows and works to destroy us. And instead of understanding that they're dealing with a sovereign Jewish state that is being threatened with annihilation, and a prime minister of Israel is going to go speak out against a deal that he thinks is a threat to the survival of the one and only Jewish state, they dismiss it as politics. Believe me, if Ben Rhodes or Obama thought that something was happening around the world that would endanger not just the security of the United States, but the survival of the United States, you can rest assured that Obama would go anywhere in the world and make that case of why that deal was bad without thinking twice about it. And it's unfortunate that even today that they're trying to put a partisan hinge. I'm not saying that people didn't see it through that partisan lens. I'm sure there were senators and members of Congress who saw it. But when the line comes from the White House that this is all politics, well, that's why a lot of people are going to see it that way. I don't remember when we went and spoke to 50 senators in 2002 that somebody made the argument, you know what, Netanyahu is trying to help the Democrats and he's attacking a Republican president. Everyone understood this was about Israel's security.
And we, we, I'm telling you, Rich, and people who, who think otherwise, they don't, they don't know me, they don't know Netanyahu, the same position, the same deal with a president with an R in front of his name or a D in front of it would make absolutely no difference. And we didn't know, frankly, in a second term Trump administration, we don't know what Trump would have done with Iran. I know what he did, and I'm grateful for what he did, but he was speaking about negotiating with Iran all the time. And we might have found ourselves in a position of having to oppose that. And we would have, because you're going to put all the partisan politics aside and focus on the security of the country. And it's hard for people, I think. What it it says to me, more than anything else, it's a projection by the people who are saying this. Because if to you everything is politics, then you assume that to everybody else, everything is politics. And it it wasn't then, and it's not now, and it won't be in the future. Ambassador, I'm just going to push back just slightly, only because... um, Push back as hard as you want. Okay, good, good, good. Um, So... I think the difference between uh, 2002 and and Prime Minister Netanyahu's speech uh, at the invitation of Speaker Boehner, um, it, maybe it was approached in the same way from from the Israeli side. But what was going on in the American Congress with the express goal of Republicans, the express stated goal of Republicans to, you know, oppose and get in the way of every single thing Barack Obama stood for from the get-go, uh, that changed. I think we had partisanship in 2002 in America, but we didn't have um, what was going on particularly you know, between Boehner and Obama and McConnell. I don't think you had the same level of, of rancor, particularly in 2002, maybe later on in the Bush, in the Bush presidency. And whether or not Prime Minister Netanyahu made it to be a partisan approach and like i take you at your word uh you know we don't know each other but everybody who i know who knows you says you're an honorable human being uh i believe that the republicans in congress uh were took advantage of a moment that they saw and maybe they made it a partisan issue and i guess my question is seeing how it's all played out years later you know during the gaza war that we just uh, experienced where there is legitimate problems on the progressive left of america was that a good move in the long term of uh israel u.s relations where israel used to be a bipartisan issue uh, and it still is in the mainstream of the Democratic Party, but as a pro-Israel Democrat, which I am, uh, you know that is a fight we're having, and it can't all be the fault of the Democratic Party that that this is where we are. I would just sort of maybe ask you to opine a little bit on that as somebody who's been involved in this for a long time and cares about the U.S.-Israel relationship and knows Washington. So. So we can talk about the partisanship when it comes to Israel and what are the driving factors in it. But I I want to just say one other thing about the speech. I I want you to understand, Jared. I see the deal as a threat to the survival of the country. I I can't say that enough. And so the intentions of the people who invited or didn't invite at the end of the day pale in comparison to the moral obligation of a prime minister of Israel who's entrusted with the security of his country to come and speak out when it comes to an issue of survival. Like if you told me it was an an issue that dealt with, it's a security challenge facing Israel. Okay. Something less than that. Okay. Then all of these other factors would matter. You know, I remember I did an interview. I don't remember who it was who interviewed me right around the time that this thing came out. And they said, well, you know, aren't you concerned that 
the only thing people are going to remember from this speech is the so-called, you know, breach of protocol of you having did it. I said, let me tell you something. If in 50 years people, A, you know, remember this speech at all or thinking about this speech in terms of a breach in protocol, I'll be very happy because then it would have meant that Iran never actually developed a nuclear weapon. I mean, this is very, I, 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 this is very, you have to understand it. it. The prime minister of Israel has been prime minister, you know, for 15 years. He's been focused on preventing this regime that is caught in a working to destroy us every single day and that openly calls for our annihilation, that tweets it. And I know you're you're sensitive to it because you obviously care about Israel. But when you're a prime minister of Israel, you have a responsibility to speak out. And I'll tell you a story that will encapsulate it. Then we'll get to the partisan issues within the parties, which I'm happy to speak about. But I had a visit. Uh, the Czech prime minister, uh, the Czech ambassador to Washington came to see me a few weeks before the speech. Because if you remember, the speech was announced in mid-January and the speech wasn't given until March. And I want to come back to the announcement and, in a middle, minute also, if we could, but keep, keep going with your story. Right, it's fine. I actually, I actually didn't know that they were going to announce it the day after uh, uh, President Obama's, uh, uh, it's, um, they didn't coordinate it with us when they were going to actually make the announcement. I think they did it the day after uh, his State of the Union uh, speech that he gave, that I didn't know. So that kind of the actual timing of when they were going to announce it, we can talk about it in a second. But I had like a, a few weeks later, I think it's like mid-February, the Czech ambassador to Washington comes to visit me in the embassy. And he asked me, you know, what, you know what's the situation with the speech? Because then it was, it, was, it was a lot of controversy. Everybody was, you know, pulling their hair out and stuff about this speech. What was going to happen? Should he do it? Should he not do it? All of this kind of stuff. And I said to him, I want to ask you a question. If the Czech prime minister would have been invited by the British parliament in 1938 to address that parliament and to address the nation, the British people, even though Chamberlain had a different policy, if he would have been invited, would your prime minister have come? That's question one. And the second question I asked him, if your prime minister would not have come, would your nation have ever forgiven him? And when he heard that, he says, I understand. And that was the end of our conversation. So I'm not trying to cast Obama as Chamberlain. OK, we don't have to go down that whole thing with all the different characters. Again, I'm not questioning the sincerity of anybody. I'm just saying, don't question our sincerity. When you see such a threat, politics is completely unimportant. And I actually think that the prime minister's speech had a huge impact on policy in the United States towards Iran, which is what I was hoping it would have. It had a huge immediate impact. And I think it's hard for me to believe that if Netanyahu doesn't make that speech, and he actually did what some people were advising is to do some sort of a deal with the Obama administration, get a couple billion dollars more in, in military assistance or something. And, you know, you just have to work with the administration because that's a very important priority for American foreign policy. I don't believe that the, the successive administration, the Trump administration, would have left that deal. I think that speech directly led to a dynamic that ultimately led to the withdrawal of the deal. Now, it's not over. We've had four years where the administration withdrew from the deal and put enormous pressure on them. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit, what that means. But now they may actually go back into the deal. The other thing, Jared, that I didn't, you know, that I didn't anticipate 
that was a positive consequence. You know, this issue of trying to cast it in a partisan light, you could see that they were going to try to do it. And whether they were successful or not successful of doing it, you know, it remains to be seen over over time. But one positive consequence that I that I did not anticipate that happened was the impact that it had on the Gulf Arab states. Like that was not in my mind at all. We, you know, we knew in, in giving that speech, we weren't just speaking for Israel, that we were telling a truth that the Gulf states in particular, but virtually all countries in the Arab world, they thought the same thing we did. We were just saying publicly what they were telling maybe you, maybe Richard, maybe others privately. We were saying the same thing. But what I didn't understand is that for them, Netanyahu's speech to Congress was sort of like a dec- Israel's declaration of independence from America. Because the way they see it is if Israel's a vassal of Rome, and in this case, you're Rome, you know, why deal with a vassal? Just deal with Rome. But if Israel's showing it's going to be independent and it's willing to speak out, and it, it's not that I, you know, when I say, I've said in the past I, that speech was a no-brainer to me, it's not that I didn't think it was difficult and there's consequences for the speech. It's just that I thought given the existential nature of the threat we face, it was an obligation, a fundamental moral obligation to give that speech. But you know there's going to be consequences. When they saw the prime minister of Israel come to Congress and speak out for his people, I think they, I mean, I know it, they were in awe. And that created, that created a situation just really quickly where we were having contacts underneath the surface, which I can't get into all those contacts, and they were moving ahead of the pace of maybe 10 miles an hour. And after that speech, they went up to about 60 miles an hour. And that ultimately, I think, created a framework that was, you know, four or five years later came out in the Abraham Accords. But it, it didn't start at that speech, but it accelerated dramatically and I think went into, shifted into a different gear because of that speech. Now, I'm, I'll speak about the partisan issue if you want to, unless you want to ask me something else. My only question is, why not let the Obama White House know? I mean, I, I take everything you say at face value, uh, but you know, I will tell you, having been, I had left the White House by then, but sort of was still in that that atmosphere. If if the feeling was it was partisanship, um, you know, at least from the Republicans, it, hearing about it publicly, what felt like. Uh, a sandbag on top of a sandbag, I guess, uh, you know, so is anything you might have done differently? I mean, you were going to give the speech. It's a moral imperative, as you say, uh, because it, you feel right. Like, and so I get that. But like, if you had it to do over again, would you have notified them? Hey, this is you're not going to like this, but this is happening. Heads up. Well, well, in this case, when Speaker Boehner called me, he specifically said to me in that call that I will inform the White House. He told me that in that call, that it was his prerogative to inform the White House. Mm -hmm. And I respected that. Right. And I got to tell you, Jared, I've had many times as ambassador, I was ambassador for seven and a half years. People tell you all the time, hey, ambassador, I want to tell him. Right. I want to tell him. You know, and I've had times, this may surprise you, where, and this happened several times with a very senior member of the Obama administration. Well, he will tell me, tell me the ambassador. You know, don't tell the prime minister. I want to tell the prime minister. Okay? And you have to always make judgment calls 
about, you know, how important is this thing that you're telling them or not telling them at all. But even the currency of trust is very important when you're dealing with senators. Richard knows that in his experience. You know, you can't just go from one senator's office to another senator's office. There's all sorts of things that are happening behind the scenes. The Speaker of the House invites the Prime Minister of Israel to give this speech. Okay, he's got to, you know, I I didn't know at the time, I think it later came out that, you know, how how much did he tell the other side of the aisle within Congress? I think that's a separate question because that was for him to deal with. He asked me, we want to invite the prime minister to speak. And I felt this, as I talked about, I don't have to belabor it. The prime minister has to show up. And the speaker told me, it is my prerogative and I'm relying on your discretion and I'm going to inform the White House. Now, would it have been better had he told the White House a few days earlier? Yeah, maybe. Would it have been better if uh, if it didn't happen the day after the State of the Union? Maybe. But in the end of the day, it's just all of these things are not as important, frankly, to whether or not that regime is going to develop nuclear weapons. I would love to have a, a Jewish insider podcast, you know, a few months after the uh, the Iranian regime collapses into the dustbin of history so that we could start talking about all of these little details. But the stakes here for Israel are so high that all of these other things seem to me to be much less important. You, you asked me, look, you asked me about the partisanship, and I think it's, it's important to, to, to talk about it uh, and to understand what's driving it. And I'll tell you something that happened, and I'm not going to personalize it by saying who it happened to. I, somebody came to see me who was a former Democratic congressman. Uh, three years ago, and it was right after the whole episode happened with the opening of the embassy in Jerusalem. I think it was a couple weeks, if I remember correctly, end of May, maybe beginning of June. And at that time, you remember, there was controversy over the opening about Democrats and Republicans, where only Republicans came and Democrats didn't come. And then at the same time, there were a couple of stories out there saying that I had not invited Democrats to our Independence Day celebration, okay? Both of those stories were not true. Uh, David Friedman, to the best of my knowledge, invited nobody to the opening of the embassy, and some Republican senators and congressmen jumped on a plane to go there for it. And I think Democrats did not. In my case, I invited everybody to our Independence Day event, but it was the 70th, it was hitched to the 70th anniversary on May 14th, which I think was a Monday, and Congress was not in session. So basically, almost no members of Congress came to our event. I think maybe we had five. I don't remember three and two. I don't remember Republicans and Democrats. But anyway, this person comes to see me and they're concerned about the growing partisanship um, regarding Israel. This is 2018. So I put down on the table a poll and the headline of the poll was huge gap um, in partisan support you know, for Israel. Huge gap between the parties when it comes to Israel, something like that. A Gallup poll. And I put it down in front of him and I said, you agree with me that this is a problem? He says, yes. And you agree with me that you have to make sure we strengthen support in the Democratic Party for Israel? He says, yes. I said, well, let me ask you something. Be honest with me. Why do you think this gap exists? So right out of the bat, he says this, fights with Obama, speech to Congress, embrace of Trump. Boom, boom, boom. This is the reason why we have the gap. And I said, well, very interesting. Now, look at the date of that poll, and it was 2003. Now, we have had a 35-year gap in support for Israel between Republicans and Democrats. 
And it's been pretty significant. It has grown over that period. But since 1988, when Gallup actually does the numbers, you have a huge gap. And maybe Jewish Insider will do everybody a service and will actually publish you know, a tracking poll that actually gives you the data. Because once when I was, uh, I was at Oxford, you know, uh, I learned at Oxford there's a tutorial uh, system uh, at Oxford. And, and one day I was very excited. I went to my uh, tutor uh, there with what I thought was a real winning example that was going to prove my point. And after I said it to him, this example, he said to me something I've never forgotten. He said, Mr. Dermer, the plural of anecdote is not data. So people have a lot of anecdotes. They actually have to look at the data. They actually have to see what has happened. And if you look at the numbers, and I've spoken about this publicly a couple of times, two, three times before, but no one has actually has decided to dive into the data. Since 1988, at least those are the numbers that I saw, until today, you have a gap when it comes to the parties for support for Israel. Most of the gap, and it's been a growing gap, over time, decade after decade, most of the gap has come from a rise in Republican support for Israel. That's the, va- that's the vast majority of the gap is actually the Democrats staying m- much more in place and a huge rise in Republican support for Israel, which is attributed to the evangelicals moving into the Republican Party. That was not the Which case. Which is a great segue to a question we'll, we'll, we'll need to ask. I'll, you I'll about. get to it, yeah, but yeah, yeah, just yeah. understand what the reality is before we start talking about, you know, speeches and all this stuff that happened, which, you know, somebody can argue it exacerbates this. It, it, that's all true. But you got to understand what the underlying forces are. The evangelical move into the Republican Party has shifted views in the Republican Party towards Israel very dramatically. It's not the only thing that shifted. There's also veterans. There were people like Newt Gingrich and Jack Kemp who 25 years ago had a different view about Israel, so th- but it has shifted it. When you look at Democratic support for Israel, what you see is it's pretty s- constant. It hasn't moved that much. It's a very narrow band. And, and the question also, you have to read the question as well. The question that I'm looking at is, who do you sympathize with more, the, the Israelis or Palestinians? Because there's also a question that has to do with whether or not you consider Israel an ally. But the trends are pretty similar. And when you look at the numbers among Democrats, it's pretty constant. And this may surprise you, Jared, but Gallup does this poll every February, and it's, it's done it for about 35 years. If you look at the February poll from 2009, I think it is, maybe it's 2008, the last poll before Obama was president, and you look at the February poll from 2017, the first poll after Obama was president, it's the same in terms of democratic support for Israel, the exact same. Now, if you look underneath the number of de- in that number of Democrats, because that's all Democrats, and you, you separate Democrats for, in age, younger Democrats versus older Democrats, and also do they describe themselves as moderates and conservative Democrats or progressive liberal Democrats? And there you see a difference. Like in some years, you can see actually that among moderate and conservative Democrats, self-defined, support for Israel actually went up. And among progressive and liberal Democrats, support goes down. What has happened in the last two years or three years, been very little change in terms of sympathy towards Israel. There has been a real uptick in sympathy for Palestinians when you ask that question. 
So that number that used to be maybe, let's say, in the Democratic range is usually from about the low 40s to the high 50s in terms of sympathize with Israel. What percentage of them sympathize with Israel? The Republican range in the data goes from about 30 percent to 88 percent. It's a much bigger um, a change. But the on the Palestinian side, you had numbers that were very low in the teens, and then they climbed into the 20s, and now they've climbed into the 30s. And I think that is because of changes within American society and younger, more progressive, more liberal voters entering um, the Democratic Party and bringing with them a certain worldview. And Israel fits into this worldview in a certain way. It is tempting to believe, and I wish I could believe, that it's this or that speech or this or that prime minister or this or that ambassador or this or that Israeli policy regarding settlements or what happens in the Western Wall and everything, that I wish that were the driving factor. I wish I believed that because those are things that are in our control. It's a very Zionist view. You know, it's very tempting. If only we would do this, we would change it. I don't think so. I think the views of Israel are largely affected by much broader change, changes in the zeitgeist. And we are the many people who have this worldview, who are now maybe entering in bigger numbers within the Democratic Party, they're going to see Israel through that worldview, through that lens. That has nothing to do with Israel. And we could talk about that worldview if you want. I don't think that's Biden. I don't think that's Pelosi. I don't think it's Hoyer. I don't think it's Schumer. It's not the older generation of Democrats, but it is certainly a younger generation. And it's something that we, we have to focus on and we have to be concerned with. Uh, and I just the last point of that, and we'll, the prime minister's speech is not the reason why Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite. It's not the reason why Jeremy Corbyn became the head of the Labour Party in Britain or why he almost became prime minister. Thankfully, he didn't. It, the reason why he became the head of the Labour Party is because a certain movement within the Labour Party took that over. And that was where the passion is. And I think you're going to you see trends like that happening in many countries around the world, not just the United States. And I think a lot of these other issues, they make for an interesting conversation. They make for an interesting anecdote, but it's not data. And that's actually not what's happening. And the danger here is if people do not recognize what actually the drivers are, they're not going to come up with effective solutions on how to deal with it. Much of it is out of our control because it has to do with the cultural and educational zeitgeist in the United States that, frankly, has nothing to do with Israel. But there are certain things that Israel can do, like reaching out to core constituencies within the Democratic Party, which I tried to do a lot of when I was ambassador, like the African-American. I, I, I'm sure that I dedicated more time than any of my predecessors to outreach to the African-American community, to the LGBT community as well, and to other constituents and to connect them with Israel and to keep making that case. But, you know, this is not this is not because of the issues that most people think and what I would say 99 percent of the journalism focuses on the wrong story. And it's and it's the danger is, is that they're just they may get it. Look, if, if there is a new government, I'm not in Washington. Right. So if there's a new government and Prime Minister Netanyahu is not in Jerusalem, then people are going to understand that this is wrong. They'll eventually wake up to the threat. The question is, how long will it take and what will be the price of actually understanding where the threat comes from? And I think the threat comes from that worldview where Israel is seen as a 
and we, we uh, maybe I'll stop here and we can talk about it a little bit later. But Israel is, you know, seen as being standing against that zeitgeist and against that current of how they see the world. And much of it boils down to a very simple principle. Might makes wrong. For many of those young progressives, might makes wrong. And if Israel is a rising power among the nations and is powerful and the Palestinians have succeeded as painting themselves as a David to Israel's Goliath, which is a false narrative, but they've succeeded in many ways, then Israel is going to be seen as bad. But I also think that that idea that might makes wrong is not only a danger for Israel, it's a danger to Jews. Because Jews are not living, Jews are not living tent to a room in the Lower East Side anymore. They're prominent, influential, fully integrated into American life. And anybody that is going to attack people, and if, if, if power and justice are seen like buckets in the well, that's not a very safe place uh, for Jews either. I, I personally agree with you. I, I, I think the issue of the Corbynization threat in America is real and needs to be dealt with. Uh, and I also, just to back to an earlier point, having lived the experience of the uh, partisanship of the Obama White House over the Iran deal, uh, you remember Menendez-Kirk in our legislation 2013-2014, um, it, it was clear to me that there was bipartisan opposition to the direction they were going. And the tactics were less about Israel and less about partisanship and more about sort of a civil war inside the Democratic Party to win the battle, uh, to, to get the base of the Democratic Party against that's what you know, it was. any pushback that's of the, the deal. That's the truth. Um, and, and to secure their votes when it was necessary. And, and, I, and, I, and I lived it, and I lived it. But I, but I do want to talk about this other sort of poll in American politics. You've talked about recently, I gave a long interview about evangelical support uh, for Israel. A lot of ink spilled over your comments. Uh, you know, what, what do you sort of see? No, a lot, of, a lot of ink spilled about comments I never made. <laughs> exactly. Actually. And we have actually, uh, to our credit, watched the full video remarks. Um, so, so why don't you explain for us your view are evangelical christians politically more important for israel today than american jews well you're now you're asking me a very precise question uh, and the answer to that question politically is of course but the question that i was asked was has israel spent too much time investing in evangelical christians and i said no they haven't spent enough and i laid out the reasons why because they're a quarter of the population because israel is a, is is one of the most important issues for many of them and because their support is unequivocal. And I compared it to Jews, where Jews were 2% of the U.S. population. For many Jews, they are passionate supporters of Israel on both sides of the aisle. For them, it's the number one issue. But for others, it's not. I don't know exactly what the number, if it's 30, 40, 50%, where it's not the number one, or top five, or even top 10. Um, and then also the unequivocal support, what I said was, uh, you have some of Israel's greatest champions, are Jewish Americans. But you also have some of our fiercest critics, and that's something you tend to not see among evangelicals. If you're asking me a question of politics, then it's of course the case. If you're trying to mobilize public opinion, then there's no question that you should focus on the largest groups. Anyone who's ever won a campaign anywhere knows that when I'm dealing with 25% of the population and 2% of the population, it's clear which one is politically more important. But what I also said, which was not reported, I never said that Israel should prioritize evangelical uh, support over Jews. The reason why we have to embrace the American Jewish community is because they're our brothers. That's the DNA of the country. I actually said that's the raison d'etre of the state. 
part, you know, is not only to defend the population, our population, Jews and non-Jews within Israel, but also the law of return, which to me is the most important law in the state of Israel, is our umbilical cord to Jews all over the world. But that's different than saying it's politics. And when I said that that uh, evangelical Christians are the backbone of Israel's support in the United States, that is that is just a statement of truth. It was not the case in the 50s and 60s or the 70s. And I think it's a big mistake to take evangelical support for granted. Because, because you know, I, just one other thing I, I, I want to say, because I have an opportunity, because I don't get asked about this as much as you'd think. But, you know, somebody just came out with a, a poll that said there's an, an issue with younger evangelicals. And they that actually, was his question. Wow. Are you reading our notes? Right. <laughs> yeah, that was my question. There it is. Yeah, that I literally was asking that question. How do you know that? How but do you know that? Right, that's yeah, exactly yeah. why it's important that Israel has to focus on it, because you cannot take it for granted. Look, we've had about 19 centuries of enmity between Christians and Jews, and you have and, 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 you know, when you if you'd say where devout Christians are going to be towards Jews, it wasn't in a good place for century after century after century after century. The last 30 or 40 years, there's been a shift. Now, a lot of people, American Jews, look at it through the domestic uh, prism of issues that, let's say, evangelical Christians support, which is very different than where American Jews are on their politics, on all sorts of internal issues. But in terms of support for Israel, this has been a huge blessing and a huge shift. But I don't take it for granted, and I don't think Israel devotes a fraction of the time it should be devoting is doing outreach, because it's not enough. Look, it, it, you've been to probably crowds, both of you, where somebody will cite, you know, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Okay, that is a pasuk in the in the Breshit. But, you know, a pasuk can be interpreted in different times in different ways. And I don't know what that's going to mean 50 years from now or 100 years from now or 200 years from now. And we can't just say simply because of that that they're always going to be there because what's happening is, and I learned this in the first few months I was ambassador. You know, I came, I'll tell you a, a story. I came to uh, uh, the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Nashville. And I spoke there, which brings together all these sort of radio hosts and television hosts from uh uh, from around the country who are uh, Christian. And I did some side meetings when I was there, and I met with the head of a major university. I don't want to say who it was because there's no reason to personalize it. And when I spoke to him about Israel, he said, you know, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with my son. I said, why is that? He said, well, because he wants to repair the world. He wants to heal the sick. He wants to feed the poor. He want It was social justice. So I said, well, that's great because, you know, Israel's taking hundreds of people Syrian refugee, Syrians who are wounded on our fences, who've been attacked, and we're treating them in our hospitals. And we got Israeli companies going to Africa and, and helping bring water to villages that it would take a, a, you know, a woman three days to go one way and there and back. And here's what Israel's doing in Haiti, and here's what Israel's doing in Nepal. And he's looking at me, and he says, I don't know any of that, and my son certainly doesn't know any of that. Meaning there has been no consistent effort to educate the young generation of uh, Christians towards Israel. And part of the reason is the gap that exists between Jewish Americans and evangelical Christians when it comes to all the domestic issues, that you don't have that constant education. You know, when a war happens with Hamas, does your average evangelical person in America, does it know about Hamas? 
Does it know what it is? Does it know about Iran? Does it know about all these issues? Because American Jews tend to be pretty knowledgeable about a lot of these issues, much more than your average evangelical. And so there's not a concerted effort to do that. And I think we have to invest a lot more time in doing outreach to evangelicals, educate them about the issues, because you have 25% of people who strongly uh, support you. And that may not be the case 50 years from now or 100 years from now. And it's less likely to be the case if Israel doesn't make the investment in, in doing that outreach. Uh, and that's why I think it's so important. And that's a, that's essentially what I said. This is just a longer version. Well, I'll just tack on one interesting uh, anecdote. I, I was uh, having dinner with uh, very senior evangelical leaders uh, supportive of Israel. This is now probably a couple of years ago. Uh, and they brought up that they were very scared to see their children and grandchildren on college campuses succumbing to the kind of pressure that we've we've known about for many years in the pro-Israel community. And they describe it as they're coming to a college campus that's very progressive, very liberal, very activist. They're in their dorms, and their views on social issues are already something that most people around them disagree with. And then they layer the Israel issue on top of it. And it's simply easier when they have to choose what they're hiding and what they're abandoning under so much pressure on college campus to abandon their support for Israel. An interesting comment. Uh, Ambassador, I would just say, coupling, building on, on what Rich just said, I would just implore the, the pro-Israel community not to give up on the fight for progressive Americans, right? Just as, as we, you know, reaching out to young evangelicals, I think that, that young progressives and progressives in general are still gettable for the pro-Israel world. Look at Congressman Richie Torres, who's doing battle every day with the squad, uh, and, and won't join the squad because he is a pro-Israel member. And Israel has a great case to make. I think that unfortunately in the Trump era, Israel became a partisan issue, and even though it shouldn't be colored that way, it is. But Jared, I I just told you it's 35 years. So if you think it's because of Trump, you're not going to get down to the bottom of the issue. It's just not true. Look at the data. Look at the data. Right, right. but because uh, Republican members, particularly you know the Republicans who've sold their soul to the Trump you know dear leader, right? And Rich and I talk about this a lot. They they wrap themselves in this pro-Israel issue. It's 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 being conflated in a way that it shouldn't be. Right, being pro-Israel should not be a partisan issue, but but progressives are reflexively reacting to that. I think in some form or fashion. Um, and they're 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 not getting through the noise uh, to get to the 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 case that you just made that Israel is out there doing social justice all over the world, uh, and and in many ways um, doing things that progressives care about all over the place, right? Uh, you know, Israel is the most progressive place in in the Middle East, maybe not maybe maybe in the world uh, on its LGBTQ. <laughs> the most progressive place. Uh, that's like saying Israel has the largest gay pride parade in the Middle East. That's the definition of a low bar. Right, but it's but it's crazy. <laughs> you know, but it's crazy. We have the only gay. Right, but it's craziness. But when I'm I talking. See I, my friends who are. I want to be very specific. Right. I'm sorry. I want to be specific about something because I agree with you. Right. Okay. I agree with you, and I think the word progressive has also been stretched to include yeah. just so many, many different people. Right. I, I I think the problem is really on the radical left 
Okay, I don't know if Corbyn calls himself a progressive or not, but there are people on the radical left that you're not going to be able to reach out to them because their whole worldview is covered. Agreed. But I think there's a frame where what used to be called liberals are now sometimes taking to themselves, you know, they're self-identifying as progressive because they believe in a progressive policies. You are 100 percent right that you have to constantly do outreach. Israel's the only source of liberal, in this sense, progressive, liberal progressive right. values in the Middle East because of women's rights, because of gay rights, because of uh, minority rights. I mean, it's wild that there's all these attacks against Israel when it's the only place that any of these progressives and liberals could go to in the Middle East and really feel at home right. and feel comfortable there. So we have to constantly make that case. And I also, I, t- I get your point that in the theater of politics, you know, if you hug one person, then I don't like that person because he's hugging that person. And if you clash with another person, I don't like that person because he's clashed. I get that. All of those things can exacerbate it, and you and you have to do it. But a lot of it, a lot of it, Jared, is how it's covered. Yep. Meaning, meaning, this may shock you. Netanyahu met as many Democrats as he did Republicans in the twelve years he's been prime minister. When they come, I believe that. And it may shock you that I met as many as I did. And who is covering it? Because what we do is we have so much information out there and we all process it through certain like kind of filing systems and narratives. And if it doesn't fit the narrative, then really kind of nobody pays attention to it. Right. And that's the problem. Once you get this narrative, it's like, well, Israel's trying to turn this thing into a partisan issue. Of course not. I think we have to have strong bipartisan support. When they, you had this uh, Democratic group that tried to be the and is trying to be sort of the equivalent of the RJC, the Republican Jewish Coalition, and they launched their um, their initiative about four years ago. I went there and I spoke there and I said, you know, you can't fly a plane with one wing. You need two wings. And I remember a few people were there and they said, well, what are you doing there? What are you doing here? They asked me. Well, I said, well, th- this group is trying to strengthen support for Israel within the Democratic Party. That's really important for Israel. But the very idea is because they get stuck into these narratives. And since, you know, I I know how we acted in the past with Republican presence and Democratic presence and everything else. What I will tell you, and this is important to understand, bipartisan support for Israel is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. Now, it's an important means. It's a very, very important mean because the spectrum can change and it can have big consequences for your standing long term. There's no question about that. But you can never sacrifice your vital interests on the altar of bipartisanship. So somebody could say, well, you know what? Don't confront the Obama administration over the Iran deal, and then you won't have a partisan issue in America. Well, maybe. Maybe it'll be less. But we have to do it because this is vital for us. And maybe if we didn't respond to Hamas rockets and we would just allow our, our citizens to be rocketed, it would be less of a partisan issue. But again, I'm not trying to... I know both of you are very strong supporters of Israel, but there are a lot of people in Washington, they see Israel as some sort of thought experiment on a whiteboard. I mean, we got nine million citizens and we have to protect them and we need to do whatever we can to strengthen bipartisan support for Israel because that's very important, you know, over the long term of sustaining public support for Israel in the United States. And so I fully agree with you. And we, ha- and, and we can never stop doing it. What I do think we have to recognize is this Corbynization that he mentioned, this is a real problem. And you have to push back. And you mentioned Richie Torres, who's, who's pretty remarkable. I saw an interview that he gave. On Jewish Insider's first podcast, was, I hope. 
I well, I'll tell you what he said that I remember, and then you can tell me if you guys did it or not. My, my, he's probably our first podcast. Uh, thoughtful and articulate person, and he he did this interview, and he said, um, he said somebody asked me how I can be black, gay, uh, progressive, and also be I don't know if he said a Zionist or a supporter of Israel, and I think his answer was because I didn't go to college. Okay, I think that's his, what his answer was, and that tells you a lot. Because when you get when when people are being turned out of universities and they believe these certain ideas that Mike makes wrong, like I don't think Richie Torres believed Mike makes wrong. He probably thinks you can be powerful and just and you can be powerful and unjust. You can be weak and just and weak and unjust. And so he's not going to see Israel through that lens. And he is a member of the LGBT community. Yep. Understands the difference between being in Israel and being anywhere else like he gets that. But for a lot of people, they have to make that distinction. And I'm with you 100 percent. Reach out within the Democratic Party. Reach out to African-Americans. Reach out to LGBT. Reach out to the liberal side of the progressive spectrum, because there's progressives who are not liberal. Right. It's more Marxist. Let's say the, we'll call it the progressive Marxist versus the progressive liberal. Right. So I think the progressive Marxists are a huge problem and it can be a growing problem and has to be pushed back. The progressive liberals have to be the ones that we need to reach out to and embrace and make sure that we keep them um, as strongly supportive as Israel as, uh, as possible. And that demands things from Israel as well. And we have to be sensitive to it. And you have to think about how, what is the best way to do that outreach and that can be effective. And here, can this or that policy make a difference? Yeah, I think this or that policy can also make a difference for them. Uh, Ambassador, I'm going to leave you in the hands of my ca- capable co-pilot, and we were going to edit it to make it seem like I was there the whole time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the thoughtful dialogue, and okay. uh, and I look forward to doing it again soon. You know, this is this is uh, good stuff, and we really appreciate it. So, Rich, uh, I, all, all over to you, sir. All right. Take care, Jared. So, so I do want to shift gear to those policy uh, outcomes uh, that that obviously uh, are the pipeline from the politics that we've talked about. One issue we've talked a little bit about, I know you want to talk about um, a little bit more, the decision that looks imminent at this point uh, for the Biden administration to rejoin that Iran nuclear deal, uh, ignoring all the faults and flaws that we've talked about on the show. Uh, but we have other policies as well. We, we've already seen the restart of funding to UNRWA, the uh, Palestine, so-called Palestinian Refugee Agency of the United Nations. Uh, we've seen restart of some assistance to West Bank and Gaza, arguably at least around the corners, violating the Taylor Force Act, uh, if not completely violating it. Other policies as well. The initial sort of push for a Palestinian election and that then had to get walked back uh, when it was clear that Hamas might participate. Do, do you see, after having experienced those eight years uh, of the Obama policies, some on the right are saying this is a third term of Obama, basically, that that that, that there's really no difference between the Biden administration and the Obama administration on policy. Do you agree with that, or do you see nuanced differences in how they've approached Israel, particularly now in light of the recent conflict? Well, in terms of the policy, I think it's 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 too early to tell. Uh, I also think that the Biden administration is taking over. You know, it, it is true that the Obama administration took over right after the crisis in 2008 and really had a lot on its plate. But it's different than COVID and the economic situation that you have now, which I think even makes you know 2008 look like small potatoes. So there, there's there's things that are consuming the administration as would consume any administration that would be different. Um, and I also think President Biden is not President Obama. And that, that's that's a big difference. 
Uh, and I think he, you know, he's a different generation, an older generation. I think in him, you have somebody, uh, I would say a few things about it. Number one is he's always seen, to the best of my knowledge, he's always seen Israel as an asset and not a liability. Now the argument that Israel's a, a liability has become ridiculous because of the importance of Israel in terms of American national security, largely because you're trying to reduce your military footprint in the Middle East. And Israel's security punch matters a lot more than it once did. And also because of the impact of Israeli technology to American prosperity, because I think, you know, Israel's economy was 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 a non-event in terms of uh, American national prosperity uh, not that long ago. And now, because we are the second great center of innovation in the world after Silicon Valley and and things like you know, autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence and cyber and all these areas, Israel becomes more and more important to the United States, who's pretty much in a race with China, who's going to be the, you know, the country that's going to dominate the 21st century. So, but now to say that Israel's an asset to the United States is not such a hard argument to make. It, it, it was, you know, it, it shouldn't have been, but many people made the argument, I should say, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, um, largely because of oil and Arabs. And with America being energy independent and the Arabs moving towards Israel, that liability argument has collapsed. But the reason I'm saying that about Biden, he never really made that argument. I mean, he was saying for decades, if we didn't have an Israel, we'd have to invent it. It's a little bit like Alexander Haig once said that about Israel, that's unsinkable aircraft carrier in the heart of a region that is critical for U.S. national security. So I think Biden has always gotten that, the strategic importance of Israel. The second thing is there's an inherent sympathy that is not an intellectual understanding of the importance of a Jewish state, which I, I encountered in many conversations with Obama, that, that he, he did understand why the Jewish people should have a state of their own, given its history and everything else. Um, but on an emotional level, Biden has, I think, a deep sympathy for Israel, and I think it comes from his father uh, in the decade after the Holocaust, and his father telling him, you know, what had happened, how important it is for the Jews to have a state. I mean, he gets that at the Kishka level, okay? And I think a third thing with President Biden is he's not somebody, I think on any issue, who likes public confrontations. You know, we have differences with, you can have differences with administrations. The question is, does that spill over to the public or not? And I, I have a, a secret, Richard. We had differences with the Trump administration. It was very rarely aired any of those differences because we were it's, able that's actually not a secret from me but yeah, yeah but, I, but, but yes because yeah. you were there sometimes but we had disagreements <laughs> and you know in the years that you were there we had disagreements i'll just give the case of the syria the withdrawal from syria as one example but it could be with policy towards turkey it could be with a lot of other things you could have disagreements but you really try to work behind the scenes to figure out in, in the nature befitting two important allies to figure out how to resolve those differences. You don't want it to spill out. With President Obama, that was not the case, or with the Obama administration, where they were constantly put out there, and I think as part of a strategy, because there's no other way to really explain how consistent it was, because, and I don't think it was a mindless strategy. I think it was a strategy that said, if we have a little daylight with Israel, a little friction with Israel, then maybe we'll get the Palestinians to come on board and that'll turn us into an honest broker and all this kind of stuff. We don't have to rehash it. But with Biden, he wants to avoid all of that. And I think that's also very good for the relationship because there is a price for friction. You know, friction between the United States and Israel, and I can tell you that as ambassador, 
you're always trying to reduce the friction whenever you can because it projects elsewhere when our enemies and your enemies see us working together it's it's, it's better for both of us it helps israel's deterrence and i think it it, it creates more it is a projection of American power that one of its most important allies it's lined up with and that there's not daylight between us. So we try to do what we can to avoid those tensions. The, the problem is when you have such vital issues sometimes and you're at odds with such vital issues, a lot of times, you know, that has to surface. So with Biden. And, that, and that'll be the case with, with the with the Iran deal, I, I presume. I mean, you, you know, he, so how, how, do you, how do you square that? I mean, somebody who has sympathies, but. You call that deal. Uh, I said, yeah, I'll get to the policy. Real... I'll get to the policy in a second. I'll get to the policy in a second. But I would have loved, it would have made my job so much easier to come every Monday and Thursday to the White House under the Obama administration and thank them for standing up to Iran, this country that's vowing and working to destroy Israel. I would have loved that. Uh, it would have been much easier also in with uh, the Jewish American population. Um, and many other, for many other reasons, I would love that, but it didn't happen. So I was stuck in a situation where you're going to have to um, stand up for your country's interests. Uh, and even if that means sometimes standing up in, uh, against Amer uh, Israel's greatest friend. And that's just a reality you have to deal with. And, and if you are not willing to do it, then you're not, you know, you, I, I think one of the things that is critical for any person who be prime minister of Israel is to be able to say no, even to your greatest friend. Uh, because as much as the friction that you'll have with any U.S. administration over this or that policy is not good for Israel, the worst thing for Israel is to be weak. The worst thing for Israel is to make concessions that turn it into a weaker ally, because that will not only bad, be bad for Israel in the region, it will be bad ultimately for the U.S.-Israel alliance. Because if you know the history of the alliance, and you do, it got stronger and stronger because Israel got stronger and stronger and was seen as a more and more important ally uh, for U.S. interests. Now, everything that I said about President Biden himself, now you have to move towards the policy. And where I said we don't know is let's see what happens with the policy. And I think on Iran, you know, it obviously has moved in a very, very bad direction. I think the decision to return to the nuclear deal in 2021 is worse than the decision to make the deal in 2015, because in 2015, you know, we made our case and the Obama administration made its case. Unfortunately, I didn't think they made an honest case to the American people. They could have said to the people, you know, we believe that this deal makes it unlikely that Iran will break out to a bomb in the next decade. We understand that it makes it much more likely that it's going to break out to many bombs in the next decade, but we believe it's worth it for this or that reason. That's fine. That's an honest case that you can make. But to say it blocks all paths to the bomb, and, you know, with the us Israelis just don't get it. You know, why, if we're going to remove this threat, this this threat to the very survival of the state, why wouldn't we support it? You know, to make, it's just ridiculous case that they made. And people, you know, and, and what, what did uh, Rhodes say at the time? He said, you know, there were all these journalists who are 27 years old and they literally know nothing. Yeah, they literally know nothing. But for him, it may have been a foreign policy issue. For us, it's life and death for the country. And we made our case in 2015, but there were question marks of how Iran would react. Now we know how Iran reacted. We know what they did between 2015, when the deal was made in the summer of 2015, to Trump took office in 2017, and Iran didn't join the Peace Corps. 
Iran took the sanctions relief that it got from the deal, and it was rushing ahead in its in its quest to you know conquer uh, large swaths of the Middle East and to dominate in Iraq and in Syria and Lebanon and Yemen and certainly in Gaza to help Hamas and Islamic Jihad build up their arsenals. They all did this before Trump even took office. And then we saw what happened in the first year and a half before Trump actually withdrew from the deal. Because people forget, Trump did not withdraw from the deal on day one. It took a year and a half before Trump actually withdrew from the deal. And it took him another year before he actually uh, took away the waivers that was that was allowing that were allowing Iran to sell oil on the financial markets. So it wasn't really until May 2019 where Iran faced these enormous pressures. That's when really the stranglehold on the Iranian economy kicked in to full force. And within several months, Iran found themselves in a desperate economic situation. So in May 2018, if my numbers are correct, and you were there, so you could probably correct me, I think Iran was selling about 2.8 million barrels a day. 2.8 million barrels a day. By the beginning of 2020, it was down to 300,000 barrels a day. It's a difference, a delta of about two and a half million barrels a day. Now, at the price of 60 bucks a barrel, that's 150 million a day. That's four and a half million a month. That's over $50 billion a year. The real money in the deal, which a lot of people ignored at the time, was not the, uh, the 50 billion or 100 billion that was in the frozen in accounts that Iran was allowed to repatriate when they signed the deal. That was the signing bonus in the deal. The big money in the deal, the big money of 500, 750 billion, maybe a trillion dollars in the deal is the ability to sell oil on the financial markets. And, And the Trump administration basically suffocated that. And not only did they suffocate that source of revenue and starve the war machine of Iran of this revenue, Trump also took out the driver when he got rid of uh, Qasem Soleimani, who was the world's greatest terrorist and a very talented terrorist at that. So there was a real blow uh, to Iran. And now to go back into the deal is breathtaking. It's breathtaking. You know, you have all the leverage on your side. Now, I don't know that you could ever get Iran. My own personal view is that the only chance you have of getting Iran to dismantle its military nuclear program is if they're facing the imminent prospect of a regime collapse. Short of that, they're never going to give it up. And if you reach the point where they're willing to give it up because the pressures are so great, then a U.S. administration would have to decide, you know, what choice do we make? Do we take this huge threat off the table or do we keep going for broke in order to do that? And maybe reasonable people can disagree. But they're never going to give it up until they face these enormous pressures. And what this, what the Biden administration is doing is they're going back into a deal that does not block Iran's path to the bomb. And now we're getting closer to the point where all these restrictions the deal puts in place will be automatically removed. Remember, when the deal was done, it's basically 10 or 15 years until these restrictions are removed. Well, now we're in year six. So now we're talking about less than five to 10 years before these restrictions are removed. So what are you accomplishing by going back into the deal? A lot of people are saying, and you've heard this, well, Iran is, you know, after Trump left, Iran is uh, violating the deal now, and we're very concerned about it. Really? You're concerned about it? Well, why did you make a deal with them that allows them in a few years to, that all these violations won't even be violations, they'll all be legitimate. The Iranian nuclear deal legitimized Iran as a military nuclear power. All they have to do 
is wait. All they have to do is keep the deal. And they don't even freeze the program. Remember, that was another lie. You know, there's a lot of people who said, you know, isn't it better to just, there were two arguments, and you remember being there at the time. One is, why don't we just kick this can down the road? We'll get 10 years, and maybe something good, you know, will happen in the interim of the next 10 years. That was also not true, because Iran was allowed to do R&D on advanced centrifuges during that period. And they're working during that period on their ballistic missile capability and developing that. So Iran, what Iran wants to do, and this is what the nuclear deal, the JCPOA did, and I don't think a lot of people understand it, because again, it's all about politics and partisanship and all this nonsense. What the Iran nuclear deal does is it allows Iran to become a legitimate military nuclear power in 2030 with all the elements of their program in place. All they have to do is mine their time, keep the deal, and then they'll get to the bomb. And the last step would technically be illegal. The last step would be uh, illegal according to the deal, but no one will be there to stop it. No one will be there to stop it because the breakout time at that point is close to zero. In fact, Obama, in a moment of candor, said in an NPR interview in 2015, he said, yeah, in year 12, which would be 2027, and we're now in 2021, in year 12, according to the deal, the breakout time is close to zero. So what are they doing? They're going back into a deal so that Iran doesn't, in a few years, doesn't have to sneak in or break into the nuclear club. It's going to walk in. They're saying also that the deal will be longer and stronger. The deal is going to be weaker and shorter. And w- the argument that you're going to get a better deal and, a long, and, and Iran to agree on anything by giving up all your leverage makes no sense whatsoever to anybody with even a subpar IQ. Because it's like uh, the, the analogy I used once, it's like playing poker. Being dealt a full house, you know, aces over nines. And then what you decide to do is give back the three aces and a nine. And then you say, well, that's how I'm going to win my hand. Now I got a better shot to win the hand. It really makes no sense. And, and one other thing that I want to address, which uh, I understand that, that, that Ben, who you interviewed the other day, made this argument. And he says, I could never understand how anybody didn't see this, which is, and they made it at the time, the Obama administration. We're going to have all the tools available to us in a decade or 15 years that we have today. So why would we want to use those pressures now? Why wouldn't you want to just kick this can down 10 or 15 years? And I'll tell you exactly why. Because those tools will not be there. Because the Iran that we'll be facing, that we will be facing, that has another trillion dollars in its coffers, that has become a regional hegemon, will be a different Iran than you see today. And at that point, in 10 or 15 years, had Trump not withdrawn from the deal, Iran would be put in a position to basically encircle Israel and also some of our Arab neighbors through their terror proxies with conventional threats, enormous conventional threats on them. And what I believe Iran's plan is, essentially, is to turn Tel Aviv into Seoul. What do I mean by that? You have the possibility to take military action against uh, North Korea's nuclear program. You could do it. And North Korea has already crossed the threshold. But the reason why you do it, you don't do it, is because the price could be Seoul. The price could be Tokyo. Because they have a conventional threat in addition to that nuclear umbrella. And what Iran wants to do is put a noose around Israel's neck conventionally in Syria, in Lebanon, in Gaza, from Yemen, and elsewhere. 
And then the very same people who were saying in 2015 that we're prepared to take action to stop that threat or who are saying or who said that this deal is good for Israel in 2030 on the cusp of Iran breaking out to a bomb, which they barely don't need to break out to. They just kind of are at the edge of the pool and they fall into it. You know what they're going to say, Richard? They're, you know why they're going to say they can't take military action to stop Iran then? Because then it would mean the destruction of Israel in conventional terms. So it's just a phone. It was a it was a it was a bad. These were bad arguments. They were made then. And to go back to the nuclear deal is the height of folly. So, so th- that it would raises be the greatest it, appeasement since. Munich. Oh, I agree with you. I agree with you. So that leads me to a question, which is. Obviously, over many years, there were media reports leaked out of Israel that there was a time, maybe a decade ago, that Prime Minister Netanyahu considered military action to at least delay, degrade, perhaps eliminate the threat. Looking back in hindsight of where we are today and the prospect of where we may go, will that have been a mistake by the Netanyahu government not to get that done. Okay, well, I'm not going to uh, you know, confirm or deny the, the supposed allegations, but I will just tell you something that people do not know uh, in the United States, I've found over the years. Uh, the Prime Minister of Israel is not the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, meaning the ones who make the decision of using military power is the security cabinet, which is entrusted with that power by the government of Israel, the law, broader government entrusts the security cabinet, who then on many issues entrusts um, the prime minister and defense minister and the chief of staff to make certain decisions. But major decisions would go to the security cabinet. That is the body that would make such decisions. Had the prime minister of Israel, this prime minister, Netanyahu, been commander in chief of the Israeli army, I believe uh, the history of the last decade would be different. But even so, given that, we have seen reportedly. We assume the Mossad have incredible success in setting back Iran's nuclear program, things catching fire here and there. There is this idea that you heard Rhodes put forward in the podcast of it's the deal or war. And many of us have said that's a false narrative. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, very simple. I mean, Trump withdrew from the deal and there wasn't a war. So how about looking at the actual evidence? But I, I think what what people fail to understand, they say, you know, you're either going to do this deal, as you said, or you're going to have a war. But there's another option, you know, and, and this is, I think, people not understanding what it means to put down a red line. A red line that you're willing to enforce means something. So the right policy in dealing with Iran is a policy of crippling economic sanctions, which you have, okay, a credible military threat. That doesn't mean war. That means that you're willing to use military force to prevent Iran from crossing that threshold. It's a credible military threat. And also, I believe, a policy that has not been used is outreach to the Iranian people, because Iran's people are not our enemy. Uh, They're not Israel's enemy. They're not America's enemy. And I think they actually despise this regime. Those are the three legs of a policy. And I think the mistake is to think that unless I do this deal, which I think was a terrible deal, the only alternative uh, is for us to be in war because you know what? They're going to break out and we're going to have to go and take action. I disagree. I think had President Obama said publicly and privately, and you can, we can have different um, 
we can have different opinions about what's the best way to convey the message, given the cultural of the Middle East. But a president of the United States makes clear, I am not going to allow you to do this. I will take military action to stop you from doing it. Then you actually won't have to confront it. Now, if no one believes that, then you're actually going to have to enforce it. But if you actually internalized and made a decision and projected it in other ways as a U.S. president, that I'm not going to tolerate this uh, from happening, and you put the red line, then I have no doubt that Iran will respect it. Because the last thing they, as much as you don't want war with them, they don't want war with you a thousand times more. And the best example of that is the famous red line that Netanyahu put at the UN in 2012. You know, he drew that, you know, the wily coyote bomb, right? And drew that red line. And the what it's always a question of do you draw a red line? Because when you draw a red line, the the challenge there, or the one of the disadvantages, is it's as if you're saying that anything underneath that red line will not trigger military action. So that's always a calculation you have to make. You also have to be clear that when you make that red line, you have to be prepared to back it up. But the prime minister put that red line, and as you will recall, what happened at that time is that Iran had already gotten a bomb's worth of low-enriched uranium, and it was working on a bomb's worth of medium-enriched uranium. And it was moving up higher and higher. And for those who don't understand the difference, low-enriched uranium is about 3.5%, but you're still very, very far away from the military-grade fissile material you'd need for a weapon. Once you get into a a bomb's worth of medium-enriched uranium, you're actually only several weeks away from spinning that, that 20%, to 90%. It's just the, you know, if you're a nuclear physicist, you understand it, but I guess you'll have to take my word on it. It's, it's, It's not a process of many, many months. It can be several weeks, and sometimes it can be even shorter than that, depending on how fast the centrifuges spin. So what Netanyahu did is he put a red line And the red line at the U.N. was a bomb's worth of medium enriched uranium, because that would be the point beyond which Israel would not be able to stop it. Meaning that was a trigger. When you put that red line, you're saying, I am not going to allow this. We will act to prevent it. That's a trigger for military action. Now, what did Iran do once that red line was put forward? They, for a few weeks, they kept going up on a vertical path with enriching a little more medium enriched uranium. But then what they decided to do was simply go underneath that line and they started stockpiling low enriched uranium, many bombs worth of low enriched uranium. But they respected that red line. Now that's a red line of a prime minister of Israel. And I have news for you, Rich. It's not, it's actually not news for you, but it may be a secret to some people. The United States has a more powerful military than Israel's. And had a president of the United States said, I am, and there's a question, do you say publicly, do you say privately what is believed and what is not believed? Because when you do say something publicly, you're also saying my credibility is on the line, so you better believe I'm going to do it. Had the president of the United States said, I'm not going to allow you to do this, period, then it's their deterrent. I do not believe that they will cross that line. Now, that's not going to solve the problem. It doesn't mean that they're gonna, you're going to dismantle their program overnight. But it makes a big difference. And if Obama would have done it then, he wouldn't have had to do the nuclear deal. Um, after he didn't enforce the red line in Syria, it would have been much harder for him to do it. But had, had he put that red line down and made it clear, not just we always have an option on the table, but I am not going to allow you to do it. And my credibility as U.S. president is on the line and I'm going to put that red line. 
You wouldn't have had to do any of that dealing. You could have just kept ratcheting up the pressures. And the policy, the formula for success, as I said, is crippling sanctions, a credible military threat on a breakout, not on just fighting a war with Iran, but on a breakout to a bomb, which is different, and the combination of outreach to the Iranians. Now, I would say that the Trump administration for the first three years essentially only had one leg of that policy, which was the economic leg. I think when Soleimani was taken out, they were worried in Iran that President Trump was liable of doing things that they had not expected because they didn't think he was going to take such action. And so I think that gave the United States a credible military threat against a potential breakout. And I would say even before Trump did it, you remember the episode with the drone, where the lack of response to the drone actually undermined that credibility of that threat. It was Soleimani when that happened. So in 2020, you now had two elements in place. The third element I don't think the administration worked on, which is reaching out to the people of, of Iran, and they're your partners against this very, very dangerous regime that represses them and threatens us. But right now, if Biden taking over, if Biden says, I'm not going to allow the Iranians to do it, I mean, you're, he's not a spectator. I remember going to Congress, I don't know if you were there at the time, during the debates over this deal in 2015. And when I would tell people, you know, you, you have to, you know, I, I hope, I hope that you will oppose this nuclear deal and, and explain to them all the reasons why it was such a danger. A lot of people said to me, you know, if we oppose this, we're going to have the worst of all worlds. They said the international sanctions regime is going to collapse and Iran will rush to a bomb. So on the first one, I said, that's just not true. If the U.S. government decides to make companies around the world choose between doing business with a $21 trillion U.S. economy and $400 billion Iranian economy, it's a no-brainer. And that's exactly what the Trump administration did, which is why, despite the fact that you had all the political leaders who still supported the deal, it didn't matter because all the sanctions were so powerful. And that was unilateral sanctions by the United States without the support of everyone else because they were willing to put the American economy on one side of those scales. And then everybody made that choice. You know, British, uh, British airlines made that choice and German banks and French oil companies and everybody else made that choice. But the second thing was interesting because they say, if we don't do this deal, Iran's just going to rush to a bomb. And I said, I don't understand. Is the United States a spectator to this event? Are you, or are you an actor here? Israel has made it clear that we're not going to allow them to cross that line. And that deters them from a breakout, certainly somewhat. But if America does it, of course they're going to be deterred from the breakout. So it's a, the, the whole reasoning behind why you need to rush into the deal is totally wrong. Because all they have to do, to, and they could do this tomorrow, they'll tell you, well, Iran is only four months away or six months away or eight months away. Let me tell you, if tomorrow President Biden goes up and he says, here's my red line, just like the prime minister did at the U.N., if he gives a speech in two months at the U.N. and pulls out the bomb that Netanyahu had and said, this is America's red line, Iran's not going to break out to a bomb. I don't care what its leaders say anything. They're not going to break out to a bomb. But you, gotta, you have to be willing to enforce it. And if you're willing to enforce it, you will not have to enforce it. And there won't be a war. And Iran will be under a squeeze. And then you may be able to achieve a different result. W one last thing. I know it's a, it's a short answer to a long question. But one last thing I want to I say. 
The idea that the maximum pressure campaign is not working, I, I mean, not only is it wrong, but it is, there's a level of, uh, I don't know if the word is dishonesty, but, but it, th- there is a level there of chutzpah that is hard for me to accept. Why? Because as we said, in 2019, you had all the pressures on Iran in place. And we know between 2019 and November 2020, between May 2019, when the oil waivers were taken away, in that year and a half until November 2020, our intelligence agencies and your intelligence agencies know that Iran was hoping for a change of U.S. policy after the November elections. That was their hope. That's not an assessment. That's what we know, because they were drowning. And, you know, when you're drowning, you can tread water for a while if you think a ship, a rescue boat is coming. And they thought that rescue boat was coming. And why did they think that? Because everybody who was running for office on the other side of the aisle was saying, we're going to go right back into the deal. That's what they were saying. That was the hope that Iran had that allowed them to withstand this massive pressure campaign. Now, as, as I said, I don't know what Trump would have done if he would have won re-election. Nobody knows. Maybe he would have rushed into a bad deal with Iran. I don't know. He didn't do it before. I would hope he wouldn't do it after. But this gave a lifeline to an Iranian regime that could withstand this pressure. So for people to come now and say, it's not working, Iran didn't collapse. When they themselves undermined the maximum pressure campaign by saying that help was on the way is astounding to me. And I have no doubt that if President Biden would reconsider, would keep the maximum pressure campaign on, would put that red line down that I'm not going to allow you to do that, and would do outreach to the Iranian people, I do not believe that they sustain four years of this pressure. They don't. Now, will they at that point come to the table and really dismantle their program? Again, only if they're facing such pressure that the regime is uh, is threatened with collapse. But I, I think it's worth it for the future uh, of the security of the region and the world uh, to try to, to try to enact that policy. And unfortunately, that's not what they're doing. Ambassador, we're going to switch into our final lightning round questions uh, designed to have short answers. Uh, so we'll, uh, I, I don't think to... I do lightning round and short answers, I, I, but go ahead. We'll, we'll see. We'll call them thunder rounds, and we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> what's your favorite Yiddish word or phrase? That I can say on a podcast. If people could understand it, potentially. <laughs> well... What's the P word? Can, can, can you say putts on a part on a podcast? I think you just did. I think, I think, it think you would just be did. A, a putts. Sir, yes, I think I just did. So ever since I heard somebody say to someone else, and this was about 25 years ago, I heard somebody say, you know, you're, if there would be a, uh, a contest for who is the world's biggest putts, you'd finish second. And he says, why second? Because you're such a putz. Next question. <laughs> Favorite Jewish food? Ah, my mother's brisket. Good. Uh, cooked well? Cooked medium? No, I didn't say brisket. I Your said mother's my mother's brisket. brisket. Your mother's brisket. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll share the recipe with Jewish Insider listeners Correct. at some point. Favorite book you've read recently? Well, I was rereading this book, The Devil and the Jews, that I had read several years ago that I think is very instructive about the nature of anti-Semitism. 
So I, I'd recommend it to your readers. And I, I would also go back and read The Closing of the American Mind, which I read about 30 years ago. I think it tells you a lot about the intellectual zeitgeist that you have today. And final question. What's next for you? Uh, Israeli politics as a candidate, not just advisor, something else? Uh, I don't know. I haven't made any decisions. I came back to Israel three months ago and enjoying being able to do uh, normal things that normal people are supposed to do and, and, and the freedom of being in Israel. But, uh, you know, I hope that I will be able to continue to contribute in some way to, uh, to helping strengthen Israel and, and, and also to securing the Jewish future, which I've uh, dedicated a you know, certainly more my professional life to doing. Ambassador Ron Dermer, we appreciate your time. I think this will be called Two Hours with Ron Dermer. Definitely our longest podcast, but uh, thank you so much for doing it, and we look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Take care. Uh, that was incredible. Uh, definitely the ambassador uh, can can probably have gone for another couple of hours there. Uh, but I think we learned a lot unpacking his views of the last several years. Very few people have had a bird's eye view of U.S. Israel relationship uh, over the last more than a decade than Ron Dermer. And so to hear the inside scoops, whether it's the stories about how that speech to Congress unfolded or his views on the future of American support for Israel, I thought very, very interesting and timely, certainly, uh, as we talk about such things on this podcast. If you have any comments, questions, show ideas, and tips, send us an email at podcast at jewishinsider.com. Follow us on Twitter at J.I. Podcast. If we're on Clubhouse, come say hi. But also, take a moment and send an email, send a Facebook message, send a tweet. Let your friends know you're listening to Limited Liability Podcast. Word of mouth is the number one way to grow subscribers, and we are doing great. We're growing every week. The feedback from our last few episodes has been incredible, but you can do your part as well. Make sure you're sharing our episodes on social media and sending it out by email to your friends and family. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.